0: Father God, thank you for this time that we can come to church and we can come before your word, Lord, and we can learn from you truth from your word that will instruct us and teach us and help us by your spirit to live lives that um, are pleasing to you, that are meaningful in this world, Lord, that are are good lives in the ways that matter. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us, uh, give us the wisdom to understand Uh, hearts to receive, ears to hear, Lord, that we might um, become more and more formed into the image of Christ, your son. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good afternoon. It's good to be with all of you today. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. So if I haven't met you yet, I'd love a chance to meet you. And for those of you who are part of the church, who are members of the church, thank you for being here. It's always a pleasure. And I was with the children last week, so I wasn't able to be in here for the membership induction. Um, but it's just a joy to be able to do life together uh, with you here in church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going back into this book, the study that we've been in for a bit now. Um, and we're going to be in chapter three. So Ecclesiastes chapter three. And the question that I have for you, as we have a question often, is have you ever tried to discover your limits? Have you ever tried to discover your own limits? Uh, when I was in college, I took a course on classics. I took many courses, actually, in classics. And classics, if you don't know, it's really just the study of really old books and literature. Okay, So one of the courses that I took was focused on the story of Gilgamesh, the king of Uruk. And Gilgamesh, if you don't know, is probably one of the oldest quote-unquote great works of literature that is out there. It's about 4,000 years old. And the story starts with this man named Gilgamesh, who's a king. And he's just kind of doing his own thing. He's rich. He's powerful. He's strong. He's kind of this amazing guy. He's built a city. And he gets a friend whose name is Enkidu, okay? And I'm going to kind of go faster through this, because I know not all of you are into classics. But his friend Enkidu, he is a guy who's kind of his equal in every way. So uh, they, they fight together at first, but they become friends, and they're kind of doing all these adventures with his buddy, right? They have this bromance going on. And Gilgamesh and Enkidu eventually get to this point where they, they do something to anger the so-called Mesopotamian gods. And Enkidu is killed, right? He falls sick and he dies. And Gilgamesh kind of goes into this state of grief. Right, He's worried about life. He's grieving his friend. But he's also thinking about his own death and how it's going to come for him too. And so he comes convinced that the best thing to do is to find a way around it, to beat death. And so he takes a long journey. He goes through all these weird places, and he ends up at the house of a guy named Utnapishtim, who's basically... Mesopotamian Noah. Okay, so he's a really old guy who survived the worldwide flood when everyone else was killed. Now, just as a side note, it's interesting. I think it's kind of the proof of the truthfulness of scripture that so many cultures in the world have a story of a flood where only one guy survives. Um, but anyways, back to Gilgamesh, this mighty king of war, he asks him, give me the secret to eternal life. And Utnapishtim says, well, if you're going to live forever, you had to pass this test stay awake for seven straight days. And Gilgamesh is like, no problem. So he sits down, and immediately he falls asleep for a full seven days. Now, last night I thought I should spend some time uh, working on this message to make it a lot better, um, add some better illustrations. And I sat down at my desk, and immediately I fell asleep and woke up the next morning. Now, in case you haven't read the story in the past 4,000 years, or in case you're not getting the point, the point is that we all have limits. Not that we care much for that lesson. I think that if you were honest with yourself and you're honest with how we are as human beings, we don't like to think about ourselves as having limitations. And we kind of know it, but we don't want to accept it as a fact. In fact, when I was kind of preparing for this message, I researched on Google uh, stories of people reaching their limit. And I kid you not, I could not scroll far enough To find a story. It was filled of stories of people surpassing their limits. All these blog posts about how you can find your limits and then exceed them, that you don't have to be limited. We're like allergic to the fact that there are limitations that we have, that we are bound by these limits. We know we have limitations, but in our hearts, we truly feel like we shouldn't. And so that leads us back this afternoon to the book of Ecclesiastes. One of the exciting things that we get to do in Ecclesiastes is ask hard questions and think about hard things. And one of those things that we're going to talk about today is our limits, which despite our greatest attempts to defy them, are very much real. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes, who we said before is likely Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived before Christ. He has sought out wisdom and knowledge and experience, and and he's done all these things and he still comes back to this conclusion. He was a king who had it all. He did it all. He had the riches and means to live what we might consider a limitless life. He used his God-given intellect and wealth to search out everything. And yet in his autobiography of the first two chapters, he says everything he sought was vanity. Every way in which he sought meaning in the world under the sun was vanity, meaningless, hevel. And now in chapter 3, we find ourselves in a section of observations and thoughts from the preacher that are not just descriptions of what he did, but reflections on what it is he saw. And these thoughts lead him to the conclusion of vanity under the sun. So in this week, chapter 3, verses 16 to 22, we turn our attention to two great limitations of humanity, which we're going to see together in the text. Why don't you read with me Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is the word of the Lord. As we examine Ecclesiastes 3, we're going to see Solomon invite us to turn with him our thoughts to the limits of human morality and the limits of human mortality. So, two ideas, and we're going to see in this passage if we have ears to hear, is that these limitations that frustrate us and depress us can actually give us the freedom to enjoy our limited lives on earth if we entrust ourselves fully to God. So, three points this afternoon, two limitations, and a final lesson. And the first is the limitation of human morality. Morality. Now, so far in the book of Ecclesiastes, The preacher, Solomon, he's talked about all these different pursuits, right? So he talked about pursuing pleasure, wisdom, right? He talked about pursuing hard work, all these things that he tried to do to find meaning and purpose and permanence in the world. But if you weren't reading this like as a whole in one shot, it might surprise you to learn that so far he hasn't touched on right and wrong. He hasn't talked about morality as part of his search for meaning. He's talked about the pursuit of pleasure, and in that, it included some things that probably would not have been what God approved of, but he doesn't mention sin yet at this point in the book. Even when he talks about a time to kill, or a time for hate, or a time for war, there's no moral judgment given here. And that's kind of strange for us, isn't it? Because we often use concepts of morality to think about what meaning is. We live our lives with the underlying thought that what matters in life is to be a quote unquote good person. And I would assume that most of you, or at least people you know, live life this way. You've thought that way, right? I just want my kids to be good kids. I just want to live a good moral life. And we use our concepts of morality to justify our lack of success sometimes in other areas, right? We talk about how I might not be the most successful guy, but at least I didn't sell my soul to do it. I might not be rich, but at least I did what was right. And for many people throughout history and today, meaning is found in morality, Take, for example, the philosophy that some call humanism. Have you guys ever heard that term before, a humanist? It's basically someone who believes that without God, we can find the ability and potential as humans to live good ethical lives for the fulfillment and betterment of society, to live for the greater good in and of ourselves. It's a belief that without God or any supernatural reality, we have the ability within us to create something that is good and moral and right and so even if you've never heard of humanism, you might think, well, that sounds pretty good to me. And if so, you need to listen to what the preacher says here. Read verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, Ecclesiastes, it's written in verse, okay? It's like a poem or a song. Uh, so the form of things conveys something. And in this verse, the text is using the form to convey the totality of the preacher's observations and conclusions. Look at the parallel structure. He says, I saw under the sun two things. In the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And these terms, justice and righteousness, are really important in the Bible. The first term translated justice is a Hebrew term, mishpat. Okay? It sometimes is translated judgments. It talks about kind of justice in a legal sense. It's a term that speaks to um Faithfully determining right and wrong, discerning between right and wrong, it it has to do with that kind of judgment and justice in a legal sphere. And the second term that's translated righteousness is the term "sedek," And "sedek" is a term that uh, really has to do with something aligning to God's perfect standard. So it comes from the root of something being straight, kind of like a ruler. So "sedek" is something that aligns to what is good and right and true in and of itself. And so to use these two words in parallel, what Solomon is doing is he's encompassing the pinnacle of goodness. In the Hebrew mind, nothing could be said more of a good person than that they had justice and righteousness, that they cared about these things. And yet the verse says in the place of justice and in the place of righteousness, evil. That's what wickedness means. The Hebrew term resha basically just means evil. It's the opposite of these things. What is Solomon saying? Even at our best, even in the best places, even the best people in this world, there's evil there too. For the first time, Solomon is talking about right and wrong, about justice, righteousness, and his conclusion here is a little bit disturbing, I think. If you're honest, if you think the way that most of us were raised in this society to think, it is a little bit disturbing Because according to Solomon, while human beings, we know the difference between right and wrong. What he found under the sun was that there was no place where human beings could actually achieve goodness, where they could actually achieve justice and righteousness no matter how hard they tried. In contrast to a humanist, Solomon says he sought out and observed everything under the sun and he found that humans are unable to achieve the greater good because we taint it with our sin. This is what he's getting at. Even in the most just place, even in the most righteous place, still there there's wickedness and evil. Morality, good and evil, they're on our conscience. But individually and even as a society, we cannot get there on our own. So in theological terms, what Solomon is talking about here is what we refer to in Christianity as human depravity. That in all his wisdom, in all his experience, there was nowhere that humans were not also. You know, I think about the world today, and, and we like to think, you know, that humans are, are kind of good. Right? We like to think that children are innocent. We like to think that we, we start off in that good place. And yet, we're faced with the reality that oftentimes people disappoint us. Right? Hardly a year goes by when we don't hear about another famous Christian who's fallen in some way. Um, I think about this guy, Paul Pressler. If you've heard of him, he was a hero in the conservative movement in the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, but recently in the past 10 years, a lot of allegations have come out that he has raped and molested uh, multiple young men in his life. Ravi Zacharias, the great Christian apologist who had all these ministries to defend the faith who had the secret life of sin, taking advantage of young women who had nowhere else to turn. And when it happens, we're shocked and we're disturbed and we're surprised. Now, we should be disturbed by sin. Solomon would be disturbed too. But he would not have been surprised. That's what this verse is telling us. In all his observation, no matter how good, still there is wickedness there. In the court of law, you might have this righteous and magnanimous judge who is found to be taking bribes. Even in the best families, you may find that the husband and wife have hurt one another in terrible ways. Even in the most biblical churches, you may find the leaders who have discarded God's law, who have skimmed from the offering plate, who have taken advantage of the people. And even in Solomon's life, if you think about it, this was true. Right? His father, David, was a man after God's own heart. A man who, who was basically the best king that Israel had ever had and would have, and yet he's someone who killed his friend and stole his wife. In Solomon's own life, he was someone who was the wisest man to ever live, yet he had 300 wives who took his heart away from the Lord, the Scriptures say. Whether young or old, criminal or pastor, Solomon tells us in verse 16 that wherever people are, there will be sin. Take it from the wisest man who ever lived. If you live long enough with your eyes open, you'll be disillusioned. Why do we use the term disillusion? Because the illusion is that there is lasting, perfect goodness that can be found on earth apart from God. That we can kind of go back to Eden and we can recreate paradise through our laws and our societies and our progress. But we've called this whole series East of Eden, how we've been kicked out of the garden. There is no perfect justice on this earth. So the question is, do we actually believe that this is true? Do we actually think this is the case? I think that if we do, it really speaks to us today on two sides. I have a friend who is an extremely um, just person, I would say. She has a really strong sense of justice, and I think it's good. But at the same time, what I've seen in her over the years is that her desire for justice under the sun has led to sometimes a despair. And, and she self-describes herself as having a rage against the world, that the existence of injustice makes it impossible for her to live life and enjoy it at all. At the same time, I have friends in the church and elsewhere who have an extremely strong sense of righteousness. And we see evil in the world or they see something out there, maybe what they're teaching in the schools or the kind of things that people are, are, are putting into shows and stuff. And we can barely sleep at night because of how much wickedness there is. the preacher wants to free us from this by opening our eyes a little bit more. Justice and righteousness, they are good. But injustice and evil will always be with us. And this is a hard thing to understand and accept. This is what the wisdom of Solomon is teaching us. Martin Luther King Jr., He famously wrote a letter to the clergy in America when he was in jail in Birmingham. You guys may know it. It's titled kind of non-creatively, Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And in it, he has a famous line that had become very popular today. He wrote, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Have you guys heard that before? Now, I believe the preacher would reply to that, that while it may be true, even in the place of justice, there is still wickedness. Even in the place of righteousness, there is still wickedness under the sun. Now, I don't know if we really fully comprehend it, even as Christians who believe in human depravity, but let me just do a thought experiment with you guys. All right, take for instance, or just imagine with me for a moment that it starts raining like crazy outside, okay? And uh, it's going to be a crazy flood. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but in the old days, they used to build churches like this where uh, those uh, buttresses would be shaped kind of like the inside of a boat. And the reason is they wanted to look like the ark. Okay, so just imagine with me for a second that God floods the earth and all we have is everyone in this room. This is the ark. This is the boat. We're restarting human civilization with the people here. And I'm looking around. I'm like, not bad. I don't mind. Uh, it'll be a good time for us uh, for a little bit. But how long do you think it would take? How many generations before somebody killed somebody else? How many generations before selfishness and greed and hatred and envy would rear their heads? How many years? How many days? You know, it's kind of disturbing, right? We we don't look at each other and think, man, these guys are dangerous people. And yet the wickedness is inside of us. The Bible teaches us this over and over again. It's no accident that from eating the fruit to the first murder was literally one generation. From the time that Noah, the righteous man, was saved from the flood to the time that he got drunk and naked was just a few weeks or even days. There will never be true justice and righteousness under the sun because justice is never perfected east of Eden. And this leads us to verse 17. His observation was that evil is part and parcel of humanity. Though we know right and wrong, we are unable to purge ourselves fully of evil. It's impossible. And so he reflects on how we can deal with this under the sun in this world. And there's only one conclusion. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. The preacher says in his heart, he 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 comes to this conclusion that if you're going to deal with this vanity, this meaninglessness, this hevel when it comes to our attempts at righteousness and justice, then you have to know that only God can and will create true, perfect, lasting justice. See, our morality is a reflection of being made in the image of God, but our depravity means it is also a limitation that we must accept if we're going to live. I've spoken about before um, my time in Thailand on a missions trip about 10 years ago. Uh, we were visiting with a children's home for people who had been rescued from uh, human trafficking or some kids who were just in danger of that. There was kind of a mixture. And one person was giving a testimony about being born into a life of slavery, sex slavery, and then being rescued from that. And we praised God for that. But at the same time, I couldn't help but wonder and, and ask about the fact that there were other kids there who she knew, who were born into that life, who lived that life, and who died in that life, who were not rescued in the same way that she was. And the question was, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that kind of stuff in the world, knowing that there are people who suffer greatly under other people's evil? It was impossible without knowing that God alone would ultimately give out justice. You see, the only way to deal with this while we live under the sun is to recognize that true justice is in God's hands. Now, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that we aren't supposed to care about justice. Okay, don't get me wrong. Micah six eight says that what God wants for us is what he wants for all people, to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It is better to be someone who seeks Justice and righteousness. It's better to live in a place where that is valued. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But that's the key. See, how will those who hunger and thirst for righteousness be satisfied? According to Jesus, it's not under the sun. It's not in this world alone, but in the righteousness of God, our Heavenly Father. See, the preacher, he's not contradicting Micah 6:8. He's showing us instead wide ends with the term walk humbly with your God because you can seek justice and you can love mercy but you need humility if you're going to live in this broken and fallen world and not just be crushed by the reality of evil in the world and even in us a humility that realizes that human morality will never perfectly produce justice and righteousness this is only found in God and in a mysterious way, it's only with that humility that you can then actually pursue justice and righteousness in a way that isn't hypocritical or anxiety-ridden or full of despair, but ultimately full of hope. And that humility, that understanding of how far, how far we fall short of God leads us to the second limitation in this passage. The preacher talks about our limitations morally, then he brings up immediately after that the limit or the limitation of human mortality. Okay, the limitation confusing, but it felt clever to me at the time to make them so similar. Morality and then mortality. What the preacher is driving at here, what we need to be seeing, is the fact that there is a great creature-creator distinction. Our limitations show us that we are not God, and that's what these verses are meant to show us. The second concept he wants to have us accept is specifically our mortality, our physical limitations as well. The fact that all of us die. Pastor Jesse, who's been preaching through this book, he said over and over again that Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he doesn't shy away from death at all, right? He doesn't shy away from it, even though that's a scary thing for us to talk about. It's a reality we don't want to face. The preacher has no such qualms. He looks it right in the face. He talks about death and how it renders so much of what we do ultimately vanity. And I think on a worldly level, death really is the great equalizer. Now read verse 18 again. He says again, I said in my heart, meaning he's going to give us another reflection or conclusion, not just an observation, but a conclusion that comes from his observations about the world. And this is what he says. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Now, in this text, in this verse, the word for tests here can also mean to purify or purge or even teach. And I think that's what it's getting at, is that God is revealing to us something through the reality of death. That death is meant to be a teacher. Um, Any Star Trek fans here? I know there are some in the back corner. Um, But uh, Star Trek, you know, it's not necessarily, like, if you want a radio ministry, don't give illustrations about Star Trek. Um, But we don't want that. So I'm going to talk about Star Trek. There's a test in there called the Kobayashi Maru It's a test, if you know anything about it's a test where you can't pass it. It's impossible to pass. And it's still a test, even though you can't pass it, because it's meant to teach you something. You're supposed to learn something by failing, specifically what you would do in a winless situation. What Solomon is saying is death is kind of like that. Though death is the bane of every person's existence, there's actually a reason for it. There's a conclusion God wants us to make that Solomon ultimately made in light of the vanity And permanence of death. What's the lesson? He says it right there. That they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Solomon, he's looking at the world. He's looking at how people die. Great and small. Rich and poor. Everyone meets the same end. And as he reflects on it, as random and arbitrary as it seems, it taught him something. That we are much more like animals than we are like God. Because we are creatures and not the Creator. Now, make no mistake: we are made in the image of God. Right? We are not the same as God, as as animals in that regard. But make no mistake: we are not God. And compared to His eternality, compared to His permanence, we are simply creatures on this earth. So, read verses nineteen through twenty-one. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Now, these verses, they might seem surprising to you. It sounds like Solomon is kind of saying, nobody knows what happens after we die. Whether we can go to heaven or hell, and that's not what he's saying, okay. Recognize Solomon, of course, is not saying that God doesn't know. That's not what happening is happening. Solomon is saying that we, as human beings under the sun, we have limitations and our mortality should our morality I'm sorry, our mortality should disillusion us from the thought that we are God. It should dispel from us the myth that we can live forever apart from Him. And the truth is, I think we need this disillusionment. Um, It's often been said that young people think that they are invincible and immortal. And I think it's true. Uh, It's probably true of more than just young people, right? Old people, too. We kind of think we are immortal until we're not. Um, In high school, there, there was kind of a series of events that brought that kind of to bear in my own life. And what happened was I I was going with my friends to a worship night. I don't know if you guys have ever been to a praise night at church, basically a little concert in a church with like high schoolers leading the music. And uh, we were going, and we were I was probably a junior at this time, or maybe a senior. And I was with another uh, guy, a couple of guys, and one of the guys was driving. I was in the back seat. And we were young, you know, we had barely had our licenses for a few years, and we decided to turn in to get food at this fast food place, and it was in a shopping center where there's like a parking lot with a driveway you understand what i'm saying so we're turning left to get in and as we began to turn left there was a bus that just appeared out of nowhere going really fast and my friend being the young man that he was he decided to just gun it right he decided to just floor it with his car and we were not going to make it in time to beat the bus and so we ended up turning and going over uh, a bus stop over a bunch of signs, right, knocking a bunch of things over, wrecking his car, basically. And we ended up in the parking lot, and and it was kind of a rush of adrenaline. But what happened at the end of that wasn't what you're thinking. I wasn't like, oh, man, I need to appreciate life. We all sat there, and we just started to laugh. We just looked at each other, and we just laughed. We could not comprehend how close we were to death at all in that state. And then a few months later, a girl I grew up with in, in Sunday school, a girl at our church, she died in a car accident when her boyfriend crashed into a pole and both of them passed away. And we were there one Friday night in youth group, and then the next week we were there Friday night in the sanctuary for the service. And it's only when I saw her lifeless, this girl i had grown up with, that it actually struck me. That it actually struck me how permanent and how powerful death was. It's only when I actually saw death that close that I began in a little bit To understand the lesson. That regardless of how I felt, the truth was that on earth, I'm just dust and carbon and not much else apart from that. See, Solomon is saying he's watched life. He's examined people. He's seen a lot of death. He's observed it. And though we think of ourselves as much higher than the beasts of the field, the truth is that we're made of the same stuff. Death disillusions us from thinking that we are greater than creation and not part of it. The Book of Common Prayer has a famous line you may have heard. We commit this body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. This is the fate of every person. You ever heard someone talk about the miracle of life when a baby is born? But for some reason, we don't talk about the miracle of death. When a body dies, we see how frail and fragile and physical it is. Now again, Solomon isn't saying we are actually identical with animals. He knows that we are made in the image of God. He knows that God has created a soul. The teachings of the Bible tell us that. But he is saying we are far closer to the beasts than we like to think. We have the same limitations, the same breath in us, the same fate in this fallen world. And death is meant to teach us that. Verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth? Again, he's not saying that God doesn't know. But from a human perspective, from an earthly perspective, we all go to the same place. Let me explain it like this. I was watching Shark Tank the other day. Uh, You guys know what that is? It's a show where you try to pitch your ideas to the billionaires. And a business came in, and their business, it's a funeral home, is that instead of cremation and instead of um, burial, they have this new thing they call terramation. And they take the body of your loved one, and they put it in a box with alfalfa and straw and sawdust, and they pump oxygen through it nonstop. And what they said was, in 30 days, just 30 days, that body goes from a human being to a pile of soil that they plant in the forest. This is what Solomon is getting at. It's not a theological statement about dogs and whether they go to heaven. The statement on life under the sun, that all dead people... And plants and animals go to the same place. And if you were to dig up any powerful, famous person from history, you would find that it is true, right? Carbon, calcium, dust and ashes, worms and dirt. So we cannot cheat death. Solomon says, if that's the case, then we should learn the lesson. And yet, for so many of us, our lives could be summarized as this huge pursuit of denying our mortality, of trying to cheat death. I talked about humanists, right, who who try to deny the limits of our sin in the first point, but there's another similarly named philosophy that tries to defy the limits of death, and that's transhumanism. Have you ever heard that, transhumanism? It's this idea, which has picked up more in recent days, of trying to go beyond our limitations of death, of trying to live forever. Now, you might not consider yourself a transhumanist, you don't want to, quote-unquote, live forever. But if we take stock of the concerns of our daily lives, maybe it looks that way. But if, you were to, if I were to ask my kids, would Dad want to live forever, I'm kind of afraid what they would say. You know, they might say, yeah, of course he does, because all he does is talk about how we got to eat vegetables and exercise and do things that are healthy. See, we're anxious about these things that increase or decrease the chances of death or cancer or Alzheimer's reduce our muscle loss, keep us young. It's a multi-billion dollar industry in this country alone. But the preacher knows that in his wisdom, all such things are vanity, especially, especially if they do not let us enjoy and appreciate the short, limited life we have. There's a lot of wisdom here. I already talked about how Gilgamesh was trying to become immortal, but he failed and how that story connects with us. But even though the lesson is as old as death itself, it's so hard for us to get. It's something we know for certain, but we try to resist. Uh, Just to kind of drive home the point, and I think that as we hear this story, it'll kind of um, clarify for us how we should feel about these pursuits to transcend death. I was listening to a podcast by a woman named Alex Kratosky. She's a researcher who began to uh, open up this podcast or, or release this podcast a few months ago about our search for immortality. And uh, she talks to this millionaire, this tech millionaire, whose name is Brian Johnson. He's one of the first guys that she interviewed. And what he's been doing, though he stopped recently, but what he had been doing for years was he was paying millions of dollars to have his teenage son's blood plasma infused into himself. Kind of like an oil change, trying to make his life be extended that way. And it was kind of ridiculous. He was boasting that because of this His doctors told him that even though he was 45, he had the heart of a 37-year-old. It's crazy. It sounds almost perverse, right? It's wild. One researcher in this podcast said that 90 will be the new 50, that in the next 100 years, we might have life expectancy double. That's pretty cutting-edge stuff, right? The older saints in the house, how do you feel about that? As I read all this and I was reading Ecclesiastes, I couldn't help but think, If these billionaires, who have been putting billions of their dollars into this technology, if they succeed and we double life expectancy, all we would have done is gotten us back to the time of Abraham, who had a baby at 100 and lived to 175. There's truly nothing new under the sun. In all the progress we claim to make, we never stop death. We only postpone it. Humans on this earth are little more than beasts who are seeking their next meal are running from the pursuit of the predator. This is what Solomon is saying. He wants us to face and embrace the fact that we all will die, and when we do, what becomes of us on this earth will not matter under the sun. Now, I don't mean to be morbid. I don't mean to be talking all about death just to make you uh, question why you came to church this afternoon. All this to say that the guarantee of death is actually from God. See, Solomon here, he says, the matter of the sons, it's the sons of Adam. Adam means man. That we have eternity in our hearts, but we die like the animals. That is given by God for a reason. There is a reason that we are mortal. And it is to show us, because our human minds don't want to accept it, it's to show us that we are creatures with limits. And the sooner that you embrace it, the better it will be. And that leads us finally to the third and last point this afternoon from Ecclesiastes 3, from the limitations to the lesson, the lesson of human limitations. Let's read verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? What is the lesson? What is the purpose of these limitations that he brings up? Solomon wants us to know that if we understand our limitations, we can began to take joy in the world no matter what we're doing if we understand our lot we can accept it and if we accept it we can actually enjoy it he says there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot and the word for work here is not about employment it's not about your job or your boss it's basically a word for that which you do in all you're doing Solomon says if you understand these things if you embrace your limits you can have the ability to enjoy life despite those limitations. And so the question is if this passage, this sermon, is for us. And maybe you're not interested at all in Gilgamesh. You don't care about humanism. You don't care about transhumanism. You don't even care about justice, righteousness, immortality. You don't care about any of that. But are you unhappy? And if so, then this is for you, even if you don't realize it. See, we we live in a world where a lot of people, more than they want to project on the outside, are deeply unhappy. So many people struggle with contentment and joy and purpose and meaning, and we walk through life, if you're anything like me, we walk through life and we have an inner monologue in our head. You guys know what I'm talking about? You kind of talk to yourself, you say certain things to yourself, and this is what it sounds like a lot of times. This isn't how I thought it would be. I'm so tired of... Fill in the blank. Why is life so hard? That's not how I would have done it. Nobody listens to what I say or appreciates who I am. I can't believe things turned out like this. Have you ever talked to yourself that way? Maybe I'm the only one who does it. I don't think so, though. Now, what is behind these things? What's behind this conversation? I think if we read this passage, it's simple. We know, we see, we realize we aren't God. But we're still convinced that we should be that it would be better if things went my way all the time, every time. And the limits of our humanity then, they, they become this thing that causes us to just rage against it in anger, right? Where we're sad or we're depressed or we're angry or frustrated that the world is not the way that I would have created it because it's the way that the actual creator did. Rather than enjoy our lives in peace, we're filled with this. He wants to save us from that. See, Solomon and all the things he experienced, and all the privileges he had, and all the wealth that he spent and all the relationships that he had, he realized that you are not God. You cannot be God, And here's the secret to our human limitations. You don't need to be God in order to be happy. Do you believe that? Now, where does Jesus fit into all this? Is the lesson just be content? Suck it up, right? Deal with your lot in life and try to enjoy it. Well, take a detour with me to the beginning and end of the Bible as we try to land this plane. Okay. All this time, Solomon has been talking about our limitations as humans. Um, but there are more limitations than just our failure to be righteous and our failure to live forever, right? Like, you got like intellectual limitations and you may have relational limitations. A lot of things we can't, we can't fly. So what's the connection between our morality and mortality? Well, look with me back to the book of Genesis, chapter two. Genesis chapter 2, if you're torn there with me, what do our morality and mortality have in common? Why does Solomon go to these places to talk about the children of man, the sons of Adam? Well, if we read Genesis chapter 2 starting in verse 4, I think we'll start to see why. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. for The Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did you notice, did you know that there are two trees in the midst of the garden of Eden? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we all know about, but also the tree of life. The tree of morality, in other words, and the tree of mortality or immortality. And when we didn't know evil, when we hadn't sinned, Adam and Eve, they could eat from the tree of life all they wanted. They could live forever with God, but once Adam and Eve knew evil through their disobedience, what happens in Genesis 3, verse 22, skip ahead one chapter. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Do you see the connection here? Once sin entered the world through the tree of morality, our access to immortality was taken away by God, expelling us from Eden, expelling us from the tree of life, and the way it is written shows us the one thing that Solomon, the preacher, gets. Our limitations under the sun, our limitations in this world, they are not a bug. They are a feature. This is not the way that God created the world originally, but it is the way that he ordained us to live east of Eden on this earth. Our limitations, which often lead us to despair and unhappiness and depression, are instead meant to teach us what life looks like under the sun so we can enjoy it, and also so that we can put our faith and our trust in our Creator. It should remind us that all this is vanity because we sought to be like God, and we sought to put ourselves in His place, but we couldn't. You see, sin leads to death. Sin leads to suffering. Sin leads to vanity. But the Lord God drove us east of Eden to cut us off from the tree of life, So we might know that eternal life can never be found apart from him, but in him. So Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3, he ends the chapter with a question. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Who can bring a man to see what will be after him? Who can answer the question of what happens after we die? The answer here is obvious. No one can, but God can. What Solomon has been working towards all this time in Ecclesiastes 3 is summed up in the statement that you are not God. And that's okay. That you are not God. And in fact, that is a good thing. The world is not about you. And it's so interesting. We live in a world where, where I think sometimes we have to say this more explicitly than ever. I have friends. I have distant relatives who talk about how they are manifesting reality in their life through their own wants and desires. And, and you're not God. You can't do that. Your dreams do not manifest reality. You are not the main character in the universe. You're not the protagonist of the whole history of existence, to think that is the key to your own foolishness and misery. We're unhappy because we want to determine what's right and wrong. We can't. And we want to live forever, but we can't. But to embrace our limitations leads us to hope. Not to drive us to despair. These things are meant to drive us to him. And so Solomon shares in his wisdom, but Ecclesiastes points us to something greater in Solomon. How does this connect to the gospel? Well, not only can we learn to enjoy our lot in life on this world, we can also live in light of the world to come. See, humans, we will always have sin, right? There will never be perfect justice, and even though we strive to make things better, there will never be a perfect place on this earth where wickedness is not There is none righteous. There is no one perfect. Nobody seeks after God. There is nobody without sin. All of our righteous deeds will be tinged with our evil and depravity. But the Bible says Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world. He never sinned. He lived the perfect life, untinged by sin, untinged by evil, unmarked by wickedness. He died on the cross, taking the penalty for our sin. And he rose victorious over sin and death. And human beings, we're all going to die. Every single one of us. None of us can know on our own what happens after we die because we, like the animals, go to dust. But Jesus Christ came into this world. He lived and he died and he came back to tell us with certainty that for those who believe in him, what does he say? Even though they die, yet shall they live. That there is something beyond the sun for human beings in our Creator not just in the creation. See, for those who embrace our limitations and run to God in Christ, we are doubly blessed with the power to enjoy this world and the potential to live for the next. So I'll end here. In the end of the book, in the book of Revelation, the final two chapters of the Bible, John the Apostle describes a vision of the new Jerusalem. It's basically the culmination of history, the final seen when everything is made right and perfect and new. At the end of the book in Revelation 21, there are two details in Revelation 21 and 22 that are pertinent to our discussion. Revelation 21 says that the place will be a place where no unclean thing will ever enter. There will be no sin. There will be no evil. There will be no injustice and wickedness. Nothing wrong will enter there. Revelation 22, the beginning of the chapter says that at the center of that city, there will be the tree of life, no longer blocked by a flaming sword, but flowing freely and bestowing to all who eat of its fruit eternal life and immortality. And in that place in the future, what we see is that the great limitations of human life that frustrate us, that curse us, that cause us to, to, to have vanity, or our sin and our mortality, those things will actually be taken away. But it won't happen because we've progressed beyond our limits. And it won't happen because we have found justice and righteousness and immortality apart from God. It will not happen because we have become gods ourselves, but because those who have believed in Christ will belong to God. The scriptures say in these chapters, our names will be written in his book of life, and his name will be written on our foreheads see, it's only with Christ on the throne in the center of the universe that everything is made right. There's an old catechism or a series of question and answers about the faith that came during the Reformation, and the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, that's where we want to put our hope and our comfort in the truth that for those who have believed in Jesus, we belong body and soul, life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you, Lord, for what He accomplished for us on the cross. We thank you, Lord, that you sent Him through this world to show us that even though we live in the vanity of life under the Son, with the limitations of every human being who has lived before and will live to come, we can find meaning and hope and permanence and really what we were meant to be in you, our creator and our God. Would help us to understand better who Christ is. Help us to appreciate the truth of the gospel and help us to rejoice in that for those of us who are saved. And for those who have not yet put their faith in Christ, I ask, Lord, that you would help them to see that there is nowhere else under the sun where they can put that hope so that they would turn to You and put their faith in Your Son, Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.